Hello, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, and welcome. On today's View from the Pool, I'm delighted to have with me Helen Metcalf from Right Directions. Hello. Hello, Helen. And also Gary Johnson from Australia. G'day, Rob. G'day, Helen. Oh. How are you, Gary? Yeah, we've we've a little bit of a delay, but on the uh, transmission. So I suppose we are, when you consider we're dealing with Ireland, the Netherlands and Australia. So we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. First of all, I'm delighted to have both of you joining me tonight, today, this afternoon and this morning. <laughs> is, is because I've spoken to you both individually uh, on a podcast and one of the things that you've probably both noticed that I keep asking is, you, you, why do you do this and why do you do that? And what I've obviously noticed is there's there's differences and discrepancies, not discrepancies, that's not, not the right word, but differences in protocols between lifeguarding in the UK and lifeguarding in Australia or the Southern Hemisphere. And I think this is the best way to have a little bit of, of a discussion and a little bit of fun talking about what are the differences and what doesn't work and and why we do it this way? I mean, the obvious one for me always is you know, RHSG 179 in the UK, which is very prescriptive about the number of lifeguards in a pool. You know, so let's say you've got a 50 metre pool, you have to have four lifeguards, da, 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 da. Then you go to Australia and you've got one. And, and there's a huge big difference right away. <laughs> yeah, I think you're yes. right, Robin. Let's go for Australia first. Let's pick on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, the full lifeguard thing just uh, intrigues me. Like it does seem like a lot, and you and you know one one lifeguard on a fifty minute pools, we, we do it. But on a quiet day, that's for sure. Um, typically, it's not one. But we're not governed by it has to be this many. We have in Australia until recently, it was governed by number of swimmers. So we did have. For a long time, a number of one to a hundred floating around. Um, we recently had a review and no one could really find where this number came from and whether it was based on any science or any evidence. So it went the way of the dodo. Um, while it was there, plenty of pools were doing one to 50. Um, but in, this, in, in country areas, I was, we would definitely tow the one to 80 line somewhere around there. So it's based on, on numbers. Whereas I, I get yours is based on area. Is that right, Helen? Yeah, to a point. I'm intrigued about visibility for you guys. Does your lifeguard have to be able to see the whole pool? So uh, on the surface, so underneath not, it, all the way around. Yeah. So the wording in the in the guideline was uh, to see that the something like the, the the surface and the floor of the pool. Um, but the way we got around that was you didn't have to see it all the time. So you could be walking around a pool at a at a decent pace, and that would allow you to see all of the pool some of the time. So, so does some, how do you scan? Sorry, Robin. Robin wants to okay. go. He wants his, his Dave, chunk I'll on it. <laughs> no, no, all I wanted to know was, okay, the UK has it, you know, the health and safety executive, HSG 179, which is the document where all the guidelines are. Well done, so Robin. Have you got a similar body in Australia? Yeah, so we've got the Royal Life Saving Society of Australia and they have a document called, we all refer to as the GSPO, which is the Guidelines for Safe Pool Operation. And while it is just a guideline, once we all get to court, it is a <laughs> fairly powerful document. This <laughs> guy is fact. So I'm intrigued. You say, we're going to spend a lot of this podcast being intrigued. Um, you say about lifeguards having to see the pool but not all at the same time. Do you... 
how do your lifeguards scan the pool? And I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but do you have a system of scanning? Do you have a... Robin knows what I'm getting at, but is there a set time which they have to be able to scan the whole pool? Uh, just recently there's been a little change that's brought in the time, but um, yeah, in the last couple of decades, no. There was no 10-20 rule, if that's what you're sort of referring to. Um, it's just we've, <laughs> we've given them some... <laughs> Look, I only heard about the ten twenty rule when I went to the US, and because you know their their style of lifeguarding over there can be uh, very militant, um, uh, and it's good. There's no doubt it's good. But if you come to a quiet pool in Australia where you know, the rates of incident are quite low, uh, you just wear lifeguards out with that kind of thing. They're, they're lucky to get wet once or twice a year responding to something in the pool. Um, we're a country where most all kids you know, learn to swim, lots of kids learn to swim at a young age, and so it's the environments are quite safe, so that's one of the differences. Yeah, I think where you touched on America is quite interesting because I guess Britain as a it's almost on the spectrum, isn't it, of Australia's at one end. I know no one can see me, so I'll just flap my hand to the left. And America's on the other end, flap my hand to the right. Um, And it feels like we're somewhere in the middle, almost at times trying to work out where we are. Because like you, like Robin's already quoted, we have a guidance document, HSG 179, um, and that falls to a point down to interpretation there are certain variables that um, move away from the grid of you must have this many lifeguards here and, and this here there's there's certain conditions we call them programmed unprogrammed um ways around around it sounds sounds wrong sounds like you're cutting corners but no I know there mean, are ways but... where the number of lifeguards may be reduced or increased uh, can we just talk about the US for a minute? Because when I went over there, I was intrigued um, how good their lifeguarding was. So they were doing drills that would enable them to shave half a second off their time during CPR, which we just weren't interested in in Australia until I came back you know, with my, my head blown sort of thing. And I wrote an article called The Drivers for Improvement. What drives us to get better? What's driving them to be this good? And it, it, for them, it's litigation. Um, the litigation, even for a lifeguard, is getting quite severe. It was two, about two or three years ago, we saw a lifeguard arrested for um, successfully resuscitating a kid that he hadn't seen the pool for what the the police considered was too long. He's on video. He's watching the pool, but he he doesn't see the kid for a number of minutes. The kid goes under, becomes unconscious. The lifeguard then sees it, pulls him out, revives him, and after it, the police arrest him. In America? Yep. Yeah, he was wow. indicted for it. It that's, was it was just huge. I had uh, I don't know if Dr. Tom Griffiths is probably the the greatest yeah. um, lifeguard professional in the US, and he was just saying this is the beginning of the end. Like this is yeah. it. I've met Tom a few times. Yeah, as well. He's he's a good man. He knows his stuff. Yeah. So, what are the drivers? What are the drivers for improvement in the UK? What's what's try and put your finger on what's making what's the drive? It's not drowning deaths because there's not that many, are there? Or, is it the is it work health safety laws? To a point, yeah. I, a lot of it's driven by cases. So when something does happen, everything jumps on it to see how improvements can be made and lessons learned. But also, f- for us, the Royal Life Society for us is slightly different to what it is for you in the sense they don't they don't write guidelines like the health and safety executive do. If that makes sense, that's somebody else's right. responsibility. Okay. 
the, the guidelines for supervision. They yeah. they interpret them and they roll them through the qualifications, but I think they are oh. a key driver for standards, definitely in terms of their expectations, their qualifications. So it starts at, at the root of training in terms of how to get better. And they they set the they set the standards of lifeguarding, if you like, against yeah. the guidance document that's written by the health and safety executive. Yeah. So in Australia, from from this is just my personal opinion again. Most of this is when we do have a fatality. We've had a couple recently that have you know been a number of minutes underwater undetected, and and that's our complacency coming in because we don't see this often enough. Um, we're we're really not hunting our water like we need to. Um. And it just looks really, really bad. Whereas in the US, I don't know if you've seen one of the one of the ways. Did you say hunting or humping? Hunting, yeah, hunting your water. <laughs> I don't know what you guys get no, up I'm to. Just... Okay, good, good job. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, on, on one of the YouTube channels, they've got a wave pool, and, and every and during their summer, it'll be every couple of days they're they're posting a rescue. And I said to our lifeguards once that you know they'd done some incredible number, hundred and. 100 rescues in this many days and they recognize a drowning person so quickly because the lifeguards see it so regularly so they're not looking for they know to get in the water straight away whereas our lifeguards won't recognize it and then they'll go no they're just playing no no they're fine they have all these doubts before they'll even think about getting wet because yeah it's just yeah if you're seeing it lots you're doing it lots if you're not you just get complacent We're, we're not good at that agreed Agreed. I'm a right, Helen, in that with the HSG, the Health and Safety Executive, issuing the guidance and the guideline. Now, obviously, that is following consultation with all the various bodies, etc. But and the RLSS are the qualification and awarding body. But are the RLSS kind of the check and balance, really, between you know what goes on? in swimming pools, their recommendation about how we manage swimming pools, not manage because that's managing health and safety in swimming pools, but manage our lifeguards. To a point, the RLSS are, where you say about qualifications, they're one of a few awarding organisations in terms of lifeguard qualifications. They they form along with other awarding organisations, operators, councils, lots of different different people in the business they form a lot of working groups so they it depends on what what what's wanted to be concentrated on to what working group is effectively evolving those standards in the background that makes sense so to a point yes the rlss are responsible for lifeguarding standards but it's more of a a consortium so it's more of a lot of people and they may front that into their qualifications Helen, can we talk about Lido's? Because in Australia, we don't know what Lido's are. So can we bring up the Lido thing? Because, um, and then we'll talk about how to supervise one. Because I think indoor pools are far harder. Lido's. What's all the hell is a Lido? A Lido. Don't ask me for the definition because I'll get it wrong. So a Lido is a big body of water, generally a big body of water, um, sometimes in a free form shape, sometimes in a standard shape, outside. Uh, in the UK, because we're not blessed with weather, they open traditionally through the summer months, but some open in the winter for cold water swimming, but they have no covering like an indoor pool. So they're not, they're not indoors. They're completely outdoors. 
because so, all our outdoor pools are, squ- are rectangular. All ours are square boxes of water, 50 metres or – typically they're 50-metre pools. They're all built after the um, – Oh, one of the Olympics when we had a big funding input from the government, so we built all these memorial pools, as they were called. Um, <laughs> so I, th- I think they're easier to, to supervise because the only time we have real problem with reflection, so glare, some would call it glare, but it's surface reflection, is early in the morning and late in the afternoon when that angle of the sun's right down close to the horizon. During the middle of the day when that sun's pouring in from overhead, it's easy to see the bottom, really easy. Where if you go to an indoor pool where we now have the light coming in through windows that are always low to the horizon, we have these horrific amounts of glare um, all the time. And typically we see uh, architects want to build the lifeguard areas in the worst possible spot. <laughs> like, seriously, you can go and map it and go, oh, my God. Architects, like, got to love them, seriously <laughs> ripping into our architects going, what the, why, you don't even think about swimmer safety when you build these centres. It's all about awards. Helen and I had a similar discussion about that not so long ago, and it's certainly something that uh, in, in my field, I, I mean, I love the, the architects that have designed things when they've had a few because they do design these shitty places that are just a nightmare to lifeguard and um, with brilliant specular They're reflections. perfect for what you do, Robin. Yeah, exactly, and I love that. But, <laughs> no, all joking aside, yeah. <laughs> all joking aside, it's, you know, the, there are there are some good, good, better architects and there are some independents who, you know, are still living 10, 20 years ago. Uh, but it it is I can see because most of your pools are outdoor in Australia. Is that correct, or is that just a generalisation? No, the the balance is changing because of um, the metro areas. They're the ones who seem to be cashed up enough to build indoor centres. But uh, lots of, lots of our regional pools are still struggling to update pools that are fifty years old. They're, they're buggered, mm-hmm. you know, and they're all outdoors. I think with the so you said about indoor and outdoor pools. For us, mm-hmm. indoor pools are obviously more of the norm. And yes, the glare through the windows at certain times of the year and certain times of the day is problematic. However, for us, it's it's a controllable problem because it's always, it's consistently in the same place at the same time. So we put measures in place, whether that be film. Um, there's something about technology. I don't really understand it myself, but um, people can put cameras in their pools and things like that. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's, ways, there's fixed ways around it. And I think we've become accustomed to finding the solution. I know I've had the building keys handed to me a few times um, on a new build and you realise, oh, I've now got to find a solution to how my lifeguards can see the pool. But that solution will often be there for years to come, whereas outdoor pools present a whole new variable that seems to change every year, every day. And I guess our weather isn't as consistent as yours either. So I was was in New Zealand a couple of years ago and I was at a pool and I was too doing some training with some lifeguards when I suddenly I do a little assessment where you go around with a little map and a pencil and you just sort of start, start shading the glare on the pool you can see I just get lifeguards to start to see the things they haven't seen before and I started to realize that all the things I was measuring weren't weren't really working well on my, on my set usually I've got horrific areas of glare and bad line of sight and I was then I found myself after the lifeguards gone is taking a heap of photos to try and understand why this indoor center had so few barriers to good um, supervision. It was, I was, I was sending to other, I was sending them to um, some architects in Canada who are really keen on getting it right, saying this pool has got 
you know, bugger all glare and it's really good. We've got to figure out why. It was all about high light angles. There was no low windows. It was all high light. Um, and that might have been so different. you really were doing um, a lifeguard zone visibility test then? That was my next Ooh. comment. Oh, what? <laughs> God, yeah. strike. This is the great. excitement. Yeah. Do tell, Helen, do tell. The drag test. <laughs> Look at Helen. She's in rapture. So, she just can't believe huh? it. Here we go. <laughs> Go. I love a lifeguard zone visibility test. It's my idea yeah. of a good night out. Then write this down. So, what is it? Lifeguard D- <laughs> zone visibility test. Sometimes referred to as a drag test as well. But LZVT for short amongst friends. Yep. So when for us to check visibility, so what we've said a while ago was about a lifeguard in this country, not this country that I'm in at the moment, in the UK, technically should be able to see every area of the pool, which is where Robin's technology helps a lot of lifeguards. So in order to test that measure, we do what we call a lifeguard zone visibility test, where we, it sounds similar to what you've just done, but we make a grid of the pool, no more than two meters squared per per square on the grid, which is difficult on a freeform pool where you haven't got a map Uh, of the building. Anyway, and then you, you, put lifeguards in their desired positions and you drag a mannequin across the pool up and down through those squares and the lifeguards tick or cross if they can see it from their position and then you get a full picture and when you've got 100% visibility from that position that can be a lifeguard position but it's also recommended you test that at different lighting so in the evening on artificial light in the daytime with no artificial light so it's a it's a full-on process that you really need to do in order to be able to open a pool safely. But do you do anything like that? Um, so I was the first person to do this in Australia when I started to do it. Um, not, not it wasn't we didn't use a grid squares, but when I was in New Zealand, I had this New Zealand um, life and uh, this UK lifeguard contact me by email saying I heard you coming over and I've got this new centre and I've I've done this grid square thing and she sent me all the documents she'd um, made for it and I was going wow and she was showing this um, local government how badly the areas they were picking were and they'd never seen it I'd seen something like it in the US um, but she was very thorough and now that i remember her yeah she, she came from the uk and this is what she was doing yeah it was really good and it was a really you bad should give me a number we'd be dark. great friends <laughs> yes yeah she was really thorough she was really good in her job but I, I just love seeing keen infectious people in the lifeguard game so you don't do that but no we don't do anything like that in australia we don't we don't well in, in a new center with you know like I've, i haven't run a center now for a number of years but um we never used to we never used to, but the new centres do because you need to have all that stuff. These days we're trying to demonstrate due diligence in court. We need to be showing everything we're doing to, to get it right. And I guess that's one of the things I want to talk about. Let, let's go back to Robin's point earlier, but um, why are things different? Why are things different, Helen? Why are the UK doing it different to the US, doing it different to Australia? Well, it's not better, not worse, but it is different. Why aren't Australian lifeguards doing a life zone, uh, uh, an LZVT? To the point, I guess it's what we're governed by, isn't it? What guidance we've got. And not because we've always done it that way. It doesn't make it right, but that's what's been written in our guidance. So we we don't, we do have a choice to follow it, but if we don't follow it, we've got to have a, a better alternative or a, a good enough reason. So, But why doesn't do. Australia do what the UK written. does? Why doesn't the UK do what Australia does? <laughs> <laughs> do you want the yeah. long or short answer yeah. to that? Oh, I'll tell you why. It's I could go back 200 years. 
Australia, Australians, we think we do everything fantastically well. We, it's called the, I call it the Australian bubble, where we don't look outside our bubble. It wasn't until, like I say, 20 years into the industry, I went to the US and came back with mind blown, going, oh my God, there's this whole other world out there of really crazy good stuff that we don't hear of them, we don't use, and we ignore. You find that, though, in the UK, with the, the way the population split, the difference between Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales and England is amazing. But even when you take England and you can you can see a small local authority and they would be very, you know, in the bubble and don't look outside it. And then when you get some <laughs> of the, the larger uh, leisure management companies who have the experience and the knowledge that they are running pools, the length and the breadth of the country, they're much more knowledgeable. But So you still get those little pockets of bubbles, particularly in local authority who, who think they know they know everything and don't want to look outside. And and maybe that's just the world in general. I mean, you said about America you doing all these time trials, if you like, to shave seconds off. I, I've never seen anybody ever do anything like that in the UK. We do have a CPR know. relay every now and then. Yeah. Okay, it does get competitive comp- at, at events. Yeah. yeah, so it's an event, it's a competitive <laughs> yeah. event. Yeah, we, we don't have that that level in the UK, I wouldn't say. I'd say there's a, a holistic approach to everybody needs to be of a certain standard, but does it, does it to a point it go down to how lifeguarding of a role is professionalised and how it's seen? How how are lifeguards seen in Australia? Are they, are they, are they I don't want to put this in a, any offensive way to anybody, but yeah. how, yeah, yeah. Uh, not really. Uh, you know, we don't like people in positions of authority. So if you're a young lifeguard, 18 <laughs> years old, in a uniform on the side of the pool, the rest of the 18-year-olds aren't really uh, giving you much street cred. <laughs> no, but I think Helen's talking as well about on the big scheme of things, you know, are you thought of as highly as a teacher, for example? Is it a career? Or a doctor or a paramedic? Is it a career? No, yeah, it's, it's, it's casual work. It's, it's what uni students do uh, until they go to their real job. Real job. <laughs> yeah, and what's we, your vibe with start, America? We, is it the same out there? Uh, look, I, my, no, my vibe there is that it's much more uh, people do respect the position more, but it's a very lowly paid job. Like I was saying to our lifeguards who were on you know, nearly $30 Australian casual – um, these guys are getting nine you want to keep that quiet oh, it's crazy yeah and this and this is what becomes we, so we won't you, do a conversion can, to UK yeah yeah well you can you can have um, you know guidelines we know are based on the number of pools so we can say one lifeguard per pool or one to a hundred or four lifeguards for a 50 minute school we, we can base it on those things but we also need to keep in mind that whatever we have to put in place it's got to be um workable it's got to be sustainable affordable a company can't do something that's really expensive so we've got to get this good balance between what's affordable um otherwise local governments are, are you know leasing what's their safe. out and safe and safety absolutely yeah, 30 Australian dollars is 17 sterling, by the way. 17 pounds. That's uh, quite a lot. That's a good <laughs> rate. In comparison. It's a well-paid job. Um, it's a well-paid yeah. job. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and if you can get some penalty rates on weekends, it's more. I mean, that's manager level in the okay. UK. Double time and a day in lieu. 
<laughs> yeah, that That's doesn't it. happen in the UK either. No, the, the, uh, I think the you'd only get paid that in Guernsey or Jersey, wouldn't you, Helen? Yeah. The, yeah, the, again, yeah, and I think that the concept of lifeguarding is different to the UK mainland to a point, I'd say that. Mm. It's, I think it's this, this bubble that lifeguarding once was a career. It was something that people yep. did, they enjoyed, and it was, it was their, their job for the next 40 years. You yep. very, very rarely see that now. And I think where, where we're talking about professionalism, it comes with the concept of a, a career and making the most of it. And I don't know, I'm losing my train of thought a little bit, but it, it, it is... It is that professional status. Well, the problem in Australia, we're across many industries now, is we've we've casualised things. So to get a full time job as a lifeguard in Australia is is often quite hard. Um, so yeah, we're picking up these kids as they're finishing high school. They start as a as a green lifeguard. We're training them for three years till we've gotten to a stage we like them, and then they're leaving because they've left uni. So it's only a small percentage who stay on. Yeah, similar in the UK. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess the other thing, the change we've seen in Australia. Why is that? Is it because it's not? No, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Why the is delay. That? No, no. As I say, why is that? Why don't people stay on? Is it the rate of pay and the conditions, or is it the fact that it's just not a desirable job? It's not attainable for the long term. No full time jobs. It's a Fair casual. Enough. There's casual jobs. Who wants to be casual for the next twenty years? No one. Who wants a full time job? They want job security. Is it seasonal? Mostly, especially in, in regional areas, it's seasonal. Okay, so obviously then see, you can't have a full-time job if it's shut down in the winter. Yeah, see, in the UK, there is the opportunity for full-time. I think if you walked into any pool and said, I want a full-time lifeguard position, your hand would be snapped off. Yeah. It's just not, yeah, I think not it, deemed desirable for yeah, whatever yeah. reason. Oh, okay, right. Right. Ah. So you know, if I go to Sydney, there's plenty of full-time positions, but the, the bulk of them are casual. We would struggle in the UK. I mean, again, that's where technology has, has taken off as well because people need – it's not because they're trying to get rid of lifeguards, you know, and I hate using that wording, but it's because we can't get lifeguards. And it, it, it's really difficult to get good trained lifeguards to work in your pool. And I always tell the story about going to a pool down in Bristol. And I said, where's the general manager? And the reception said, on poolside, I walked out, couldn't see him, came back. And I said, is the ops manager about? He's on poolside too. I went out. All I could see was two lifeguards. And I came back in and I said, I can't see anybody. And they said, no, there's the two guys doing the pool. That's the general manager and the ops manager because they couldn't get any lifeguard staff. Yeah. Now, possibly COVID yeah. has redressed the balance a little bit, I would suggest. I think mm. I've heard that a few times. Would you mm, have heard that, do. Helen? That's interesting. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. I think it's definitely changed the job market a lot in the UK. Uh, and dare I say it, the big B as well, Brexit might as well change well, the job market. Yeah. I think you're right. Because we will not be able to get the the workers in from Europe to do a lot of those jobs that, 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 that you know, ah, bar work yeah, okay. and, and lifeguarding. Etc. 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 Yeah, it's going to be an interesting couple of years. Yeah, definitely. Can we talk about something happier? This is a bit doom and gloom Ooh, yeah, as to why go. people don't want to be lifeguards. <laughs> I don't know, Gary. You sounded like you had something happier to talk about, so go for it. <laughs> so one of the um, 
changes we've seen in Australia is this. Uh, so you know, everyone likes evidence based stuff. So all of our guidelines have, have gone to evidence based, and and that's around risk and how we control the risk. So um, we're heavily these days on on all the pools sort of look to the Royal Life Saving Society of Australia and say, how should we supervise a pool? And the, and the and the society will say, oh, you should do a risk assessment. And that's a really nice answer, except it's not helpful. What um, what we want, what we need help with is, is how to take it from a guideline to something on pool deck. Um, you know, I always, I always say to, to good organisations, show me the video of how your lifeguards supervise a pool deck before there was an incident and then show me the incident, show me how your risk assessment changed and then show me the video that shows me a change on pool deck. Because when we're all in court, it's really easy for for me like an expert to sit there and say, here's your risk assessment on paper and here's the video of the incident and they don't look the same. Can you please explain how what this lifeguard's doing on deck now looks like what this piece of paper says? And that's where people struggle to win the argument, and and that's the key to we need we need we need guidelines that provide safety for swimmers, but also that protect organisations and lifeguards and not expose them in court um, for looking like um, unscrupulous operators. Mm. And that's happier, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he knows how to start a party. <laughs> Give him a break. No, it's I, like 6 a.m. out there. He's not a morning person. <laughs> yeah, well, no, but you're, you're right. It's You see, the thing that, that I've noticed in the UK, and particularly in the last 10, ten years since I've been involved with technology, is you know there's diff- the, diff- the difference of opinions and the different... Uh, working practice that that go throughout all of the UK because there's like three three and a half thousand pools, isn't there? Hell, is in public pools, um, and there's all these various ways. But it, it there's, I think we're slowly coming away from that. Yes, you must do the risk assessment uh, to, to people actually helping you how to do it. You know, there's good there's good uh, companies. Dare I say it? Right directions, Helen. <laughs> Uh, who like help you with stuff? Help you with stuff like that. The Royal Life Saving Society, etc., to put practical things down. But the other thing that we're now learning because of technology is, and you, you alluded this at the start, was that people we're trying, we're starting to find out about what it looks like for people to drown and get into difficulty, which is I in think- a direct opposite from you know the, the Lidos and the outdoor areas in, in Australia, where, where you were talking about the lifeguards. Because they're in and out of the water so much, they see, they recognise someone going, getting into difficulty. In the UK, we've got, you know, all our fatalities, etc., are preceded by the majority of our fatalities are preceded by a medical event, and and it's going so far as some people don't even like to call them. It's a drowning, you know, it's a medical event. Well. You know, and we could argue about that all day, but that's that's the difference now. There's no help me, help me drowning. Where in Australia, and I presume in the Lidos, Helen, that you, you, your lifeguards are tuned into that kid getting into difficulty or the adult getting into difficulty in the melee of an unprogrammed session. Yeah, yeah. To go back a step as well, in terms of risk assessment, we we have that as well. In the sense, you can here's the guidance. There are elements you can risk assess around certain parts of that guidance, certain points. 
And I think the risk has got to be foreseeable, hasn't it? And a, a piece of work Robin and I were involved with, with the Royal Lifesaving Society, was the the examples of what drowning looks like, certainly for the UK, based on what we've learned through technology, through lifeguards' experiences. And that, that was quite a, a key piece of work, I think, yeah. Robin, I don't know if you'll, you'll probably Absolutely. agree, in terms of bridging the gap. And that's that's how we learn, that's how we risk assess, and that's how things get better in the UK. So it's based on incidents like you, Gary. You don't know unless something happens. It's not foreseeable unless it's happened at least once to a point. You don't know that somebody's going to... I mean, we we showed them in those videos, but somebody's going to hang on to the end of a pool and pass away. how How could you foresee that unless it had happened and it had been learned from and then it had been digested at the other end and made to train lifeguards. And I think that was a really valuable piece of work that has, has changed certain perceptions of how people drown. Says. Yes, absolutely. Right. So, We're capturing more and more of these on video now and that's invaluable. Um, you know, getting around the privacy issues is, is one. Um, and I was talking to one of our regional managers from Royal Life the other day who's, you know, two decades of experience and a real practical head. And I was talking to him about a conversation I had with Robin about whether we would, whether we should or shouldn't be showing lifeguards the video of a fatality that they missed. Because I've been through one of those and it's something I'll never have to do is face the video. Um, it, it's a really tricky thing these days, lifeguards, and that video we've captured of them on, on their worst possible day. You need you need a really good underwater actress. I heard that she can <laughs> she can travel for flights to create these videos for you. She only charges a small fee. <laughs> I can do the I can do the camera work. <laughs> you can recreate. We cover as a pair. Yeah. Like, but- Managing, Gary, managing yes. risk is all about layers of protection. And um, something I realized only last week is yeah, there's always layers of protection. There's, there's the, there's the, the um, you know, apparel supervision program. There's good lifeguard training. There's change. There's all these layers of protection. But when a lifeguard's standing on deck looking for an event, we don't have any layers of protection. We have one. We have one. That's the lifeguard. And as soon as that fails, it's over, with the exception of what you do, Robin. Now we have another layer of protection that's actually super, or far, far more reliable than we are as humans, and um, I think that's one of the things that excites me about that technology. The other thing I would say to you, Gary, you, you talked about a lifeguard, you know, you as a lifeguard not having to revisit the video of what you were involved with. The problem now is in the inquests, etc. this the lifeguard is what you're taken through this step by step by step nearly and it's stare I say at the Spanish Inquisition almost what, yeah. what would you say about that Helen yeah. would you agree well the inquest in itself if you're yeah if you're involved in anything traumatic like that it's not just reviewing the the footage after it's the process after which yeah. is yes I would yes. say I appreciate that. at, it's at, at present too. it's 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 not got to the extent of the case you explained in, in the US but but it, it it can be just as bad to an extent where your lifeguards are yep. pulled through everything you you're correct in australia the 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 inquest is horrific for lifeguards it, it still is it, and it's it's supposed to be you know, inquisitorial it's not it's it's quite adverse or adverse to what is um 
So the one thing the video does is negate the need for witnesses. And what I saw previous to video was lots of unreliable witnesses telling completely different stories and um, the coroner sitting there trying to make sense of all this rubbish because it's at least we have because what I say, if, if something went wrong, let it be on video and let's be hauled over the coals for what went wrong and nothing else. That's one thing. But but with the appreciation of which Rob and I have spoken about before of the Sully factor, it, I've seen videos where lifeguards have been judged on every second, every decision they make. But on those videos, you don't see the cognitive process, processing that no. goes on so, behind the yeah, scenes. That was one of the things I, I started my own business was to protect lifeguards. I particularly wanted to be in court helping the team that were helping the lifeguard because someone is dead now and there's been mistakes made. Um, but we're not going to tear apart this human for, for being human. Yeah. And, and just for me to jump in, I, the one thing that I hear all the time, and I'm sure Helen does also, is the ten, because of the 1020, mm. a lot of people use that to beat up lifeguards with. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you it's go okay. back to how seen, the 1020 started, it, it's not based on science. So it's so an objective just measure that isn't. We've just seen the 20s just come into Australia. So the 10's not there, but the 20 is. So you have to be within in 20 seconds of uh, of your of a swimmer. And someone recently emailed me and said to me, "Oh, I've heard that even professional lifeguards can't can't make the time." And I'm thinking, in a 50 meter pool, really, if you can't get to someone in 20 seconds, you're swimming too much and not walking enough because you can walk right around the goddamn pool to get close to them and just jump in the water. You don't have to swim 50 meters. <laughs> and that's a really interesting. No, it's a really interesting point because you can walk here as well, but it's the the test is the test is yes, can you can you get there? But a lot of interpretation is you need to be able to swim there. You must be able to swim because our Rubbish. our time swims are based on being able to swim fast. And it, it's not. And what if what if there's someone in the way or someone's put a float in the way and you can't quite get there and the pool size not clear? It it is. Can you get there? And it's it's also not can one lifeguard get there, but can the whole team get there? Oh, really? It's not tested, but you should be yeah. testing it with effectively the weakest member of your team. And that sounds harsh. Any lifeguard that's now pulled in to do a ten twenty test, it, it, it's. <laughs> but that that is why we have in our national pool lifeguard qualification, we have time swims based around that measure of can somebody get to a casualty within a certain period of time. And that measure of fitness should do them well in terms of getting to somebody within 20 seconds. Yeah. So we have some timed um, swims as well, but they're not linked as well as yours seem to be around getting to your casualty. Yeah. It's more a measure of fitness. It's not, it's not a time swim on 20 seconds, but that measure of fitness has been translated into the fact that they should then right. be able to get to the furthest point within 20 seconds and if you're looking at a standard 10 if you're looking at a standard 13 meter by 25 meter pool generally one lifeguard can get to that furthest point swimming yeah. within 20 seconds if they are passing their mplq but we don't have as many 50 meter pools more recently i started to work I worked at a sport and rec camp, which is a camp the schools take kids to, similar thing in the UK, would there be? And we had a 25-metre pool um, that we had to supervise in the afternoons for free swim. So here was I, you know, uh, acutely aware that if I get this wrong, 
if I get this wrong with 25 years experience under my belt, I'm in real strife in court. Um, so I'm walking a pool and working after training lifeguards for so many years. What is the best way to watch this pool? And and like Robin says, uh, regardless of whether it was a drowning or a, a medical event, what I was really looking for, what I was really interested in was anyone whose head was below the water. So that's what I was primarily looking at was I was walking slowly. I was walk, I was standing close to the pool so I could see down the edge. And I'm doing a whole 25-meter pool um, and I'm looking for people underwater. And if they're underwater, I want to know why. Why are they underwater? Do they, are they, you know, and going, how long has it been? I'm, I'm now going to intervene. And that's primarily what I was doing was who's underwater and why. You also good visibility. To try and keep it simple, you know. What's that? You, it's really you obviously had good visibility. <laughs> yes. To do that. Yeah. That it's a really interesting point you say about walking. I personally have a bit of a problem with mobile positions. It in Ooh. terms of walking is. Oh, this, oh, now I'm yes. excited. Get me now started. I'm intrigued. Let's get intrigued again. <laughs> it's more to the point that at some point you've always got your back to the pool, unless you're sidestepping along the side of a pool. You've. If you walk one way, your back is to half a pool, potentially. And a lifeguard turning their back on a pool worries me. But mm. fill me in. Um, I don't really, like if it's, if you're scanning a pool, you get to see all of it at some time. So my, my issue with with static positions is I stand there and my heart rate just goes 50, 48, 45, and then I've had a big lunch and I'm nodding off. And lifeguards who are walking are actually, there's lots of good stuff happening in your body that keeps you, you know, vigilant. Um, standing on one spot is, is so hard. Yeah, that's interesting. They're two different opinions. Because I would say standing, certainly it's not okay sitting. Wrong, a, a lifeguard. <laughs> oh no 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 <laughs> no no no! <laughs> bring it on, Gary! Bring it on. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say. I, mean, I I like. I mean, where I'd like to see it going eventually is one static and one roving because I want technology to help. You know that that would be yeah my. Nirvana, if you like. But yeah. I always get the feeling in the UK that people are planted in lifeguard chairs because you kind of can prove exactly where they are when the incident happened. You know, yeah. that it wasn't, well, I was, I was blowing up um, little Sarah's armbands, you know, down at the shallow end and stuff like that. You know, it, because of this whole litigation thing about the different stories where you'll have 20 people in the pool saying, you know, it, it took that lifeguard three and a half minutes to respond to the girl shouting for help in the corner. That but it, it protects it the lifeguard because it yeah. goes back to the visibility. The visibility has been but tested it, and, for that and that's position. that's my point, yeah. And if you you give people freedom to roam, you effectively yeah. give them freedom to make Miss. their own decision and potentially the decision on someone else's life. Yeah. Which is yeah. a And so we go back to affordability because if you imagine if the – if the Royal Life Saving Society of Australia suddenly came in and said, we've been to the UK and what they do is awesome and we're going to put four lifeguards <laughs> on a 50-metre pool at 30 bucks an hour, you would sink an industry. Yeah. Yeah. And I think our industry has, it's always been that way, so they haven't had a choice. So no, the business yeah. case is profiled around the fact that we have to have that many lifeguards. If we stripped them all away. And so what is an entry fee worth to a pool? Thanks for translating that. Uh, <laughs> the cost no <laughs> depends on the pool. 
I'd say around six pounds for an adult, maybe really? more in a city. What do you reckon, Robin? I've no clue. I've never paid for a swim in my life. Yeah, no, it's pretty cheap in Australia. It's always been pretty cheap, and so we've really not bumped the prices up in line with what it costs, and, and there lies one of the problems. Um, for, for you know, a regional council, um, I was always bumping prices up because we're trying to catch up with the last 20 years of not increasing prices and you know, the increasing cost of an ageing asset and those kinds of things. Well, I mean, would you pay $10? You, you can't. It's a bigger debate. In a new poo, you'd pay $10. bucks. Um, Ten bucks. So that's the same as the UK then. But it doesn't yeah. cover the cost here, it doesn't Helen, no. No, accessibility and, and the benefits of swimming and everything that a lot of organizations are trying to do in this country in terms of getting people fit and active and in water, you just create a barrier and you'll end up with no one in your pool. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and until we see um, the more modern centres here now are got the big dry spaces, the gyms and stuff that bring the money in. But typically your um, regional areas, none of the pools make money ever. They're all funded by local government. Well, the overheads of a pool are more than any gym, aren't they? Yeah. So the interesting oh. thing for me listening to you two is if, right, so if Helen's old lady that she used to manage in Aldershot was planted Indeed. in Australia, what would the difference be in lifeguard numbers? So Aldershot, a free-form pool, you're going to ask me how big it is now. It's about 27 metres wide Jeez. and over 50 metres long yeah. at its longest point, roughly. Wow. It's a big lump of water. So it's got a big surface area. I mean, I could dig how'd out the go, old... How'd you go with your lifeguard zone visibility test for the middle? You section it off so you might have two lifeguards facing each other on either side, but we had, I'm just counting my head, one, two, three... Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine lifeguards around that pool at any time, then one up the top of the flume. And you did a open. visibility test and you could see the centre of the pool, like yeah. the bottom of the floor in the middle? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, if you think the the wide, yeah, 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 yeah. The widest point is only about about 27 metres. So you're only looking only. at a standard tank tank width. You, you have a 50 metre pool with one lifeguard. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> Hang on. But the, like this I can walk down the middle of the pool and just see that yeah, the, the pool's only With your back to it. Maximum, <laughs> maximum 10 metres wide, 27. That is a big body of water, isn't it? Yeah, a full visibility test. Well, that, that's wow. why I kind of asked the question, you know, that Helen had all those lifeguards on a 75 metre pool. How would that work out in Australia? What would you have? Oh, uh, no I'd, pressure. <laughs> No, no, we'd have to, we'd again have to do a risk assessment. Risk um, assessment. Yeah, that's, and I'll, that you, you have to these days. You, you don't want to be in court without a risk assessment, but at some stage, your risk assessment has to realize that despite having everything in place, there can still be a fatality. And depending on which coroner you get, um, so we've had, we've had, we've got two very well um, recorded opinions. One in a court that says no one should die in a lifeguarded pool. And one saying it's inevitable that at some stage, some will, will die in a public mm. pool. It just, yeah, it's a, these days, no one's allowed to die. And if someone does, someone's got to hang for it. If we take it a step back then, a 50 meter pool in Australia in a quiet time would be one lifeguard and your numbers are one no, to 80. Think, is that roughly what you said? 
Look, I know if you, if you, that in, in, in a, I think we're looking at minimum two these days, you know, especially in Sydney, there's no way to do a okay. 15 pool with one lifeguard. Um, but like I, ha- I have done okay. it, that's for sure. And a quiet time when you've got just, uh, yeah. you know, five or six lap swimmers in, one lifeguard can walk that pool mm-hmm. quite easily. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way you keep saying walk. It's making yeah. me shudder every time you say it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, Helen, in the UK, we wouldn't have that. We w- we wouldn't have the flexibility to go to one lifeguard in a fifty meter pool. You'd be. We do on low usage, yeah. Oh right, that's being My seen apologies. more and more. So through risk assessment, it, it's changed a lot, and I haven't managed the lido yeah. that you're quoting for. Yeah, I suppose the the false thing that happens in Australia is if we go a full year and we don't have an incident, then we think what we're doing is working. Um, what we don't do is actually mm. say, what if someone went down now? Because uh, people often ask me, how many people, here's a new pool, how many people do I need to, to, to supervise these, these pools effectively? And I, I say, you're asking me the wrong question because the right question is when things go wrong, how many staff do I need to, to manage the incident? And you never have enough staff to manage an incident. That's a really good point, really good point. And I think that's something that, operators are certainly started to consider uh, generally around uh, what we call a rescue board so how you get people out of a pool if they have a for example a spinal injury it tends to be well, how many people do we need to operate that and that's our minimum number but yeah that's not not necessarily the measure but it certainly gives a defining point to operators of of a minimum number it gets them thinking of how how they're going to get someone out but it, it's skeleton and it might be that they change train a fitness instructor in the gym or a receptionist yeah. to be yeah able to do CPR and, and join the team, as it were. Yeah. Would, yeah. would you believe that, that that's been thrown at me quite a few times about technology, introducing technology in swimming pools? In that, and I would say it's mostly local authority who would say to me, oh, we, we, we couldn't do that because if, if we did that, we wouldn't have enough people to, to work the spinal board. Robin, don't swear. It's called a rescue board. <laughs> Sorry. You know, it was spinal board <laughs> in my day. Spinal board. It's a spinal board here. Well, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, here we go. A rescue, <laughs> we, we, a rescue anyone who knows me is listening to this podcast. Fondo Rescue well, use we, a rescue board. Yeah, we used to use um, slide closed plank. You know that you hung on the end of the slide? That used to be chucked into the pool. That, because the spinal boards weren't even invented then. Hey, but. Helen, this is something you'll love. Um, one of the big differences in Australia is the difference between uh, rough water, so open water environments like Bondi Rescue. Do you know what Bondi Rescue is? I've seen the programme. Of course. Okay, great. So you know what I'm talking about. So of course. When I talk to um, Hoppo and the boys about what happened, because yeah, we've seen a few You talk to them. We've seen a few few fatalities in their show and often we see things that don't go well for them. So, And I was talking to them about when you go to an inquest, what's it like? And they said um, even when things have obviously could have done been better on our behalf, nothing much is said. And whereas with the pool off guard, we, you know, we're ripped to shreds. And the difference mm. is the way the courts see those two environments, that one is a man-made environment and one is just the natural environment. And there's very different attitudes towards those two bodies of water and how um, accountability is, is measured out. Interesting. So effectively, one they're seeing is controllable and foreseeable and the other one's not. Yeah, you could have well, the same people 
have the same yeah, it's incident. Foreseeable. In- the risk is foreseeable. Um, it's just, and I understand how difficult it is, but they let those people go and get in the backpackers rip day after day after day. Mm. If we said, I said to some lifeguards once, let's just build a big wave pool with a big fat rip down one side and just let people get in there, you know, because that's mm. essentially what happens at Bondi. That's really interesting. If you have an incident in your swimming pool and somebody dies in your swimming pool, drowns, whatever, should it be from natural causes? You've got the place is shut down. You've got, you know, the health and safety executive come in, the police will come in, and your le- your entire leisure centre is closed. You drop dead on the five side court, and they'll trail you off so the next group of footballers can get on. <laughs> and and that's the reality of what goes on in a UK leisure centre, which probably drives a lot of the f- the fear of. Someone having Guilty a heart until proven innocent. Yeah. Look, the Facebook community, have a look at the attitudes towards a lifeguard. If there's a death at a swimming pool, a public swimming pool, that you'll hear someone say, where was the lifeguard? What was the lifeguard yeah. doing? But on Bondi Rescue, look at the Facebook comments. It says, oh, those guys, they're risking their lives for people who can't understand the language, who don't know what they're doing and going in the water. And it, one, one blames the victim and, the, and in the indoor pool, we're blaming the lifeguard. Mm, very true. It's the perception again of the lifeguard, isn't it? The professionalism and how they're yeah. how they're seen. Yeah, yeah, and certainly that the Bondi lifeguards are as yeah, incredibly fit, incredibly good um, watermen. There's no doubt about it. some of the yeah. things they do. Just amaze me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that and they train every single day. I mean, I think a lot of beach guards around the world are, are incredibly hardworking and train yeah. and take themselves to, to very high levels. Paramedics. Aren't yeah. they? Look, some of the things we've caught on video from from Bondi Rescue, um, mm. I mean, they've got a video there from, oh, I think it was 2006, you know, uh, agonal breathing. We only have t- we only have two- Takahira, I know. Two, we show that one as well. Two videos of agonal breathing that I can find. Yeah, there's only two that exist and one's from there. If we didn't start videoing stuff on Bondi Beach, we'd, we'd be missing stuff. So it's a really mm. useful training tool. I mean, I often show lifeguards- the video of them dragging a guy out of the water and starting CPR. And if you whack the clock on them, they're doing compressions at a, a rate of 180 beats a minute, which we know is too fast. Um, but this is what it's like to be human. I mean, these guys do it more often than any of us. So if they're going that fast, we're going mm. to be going that fast. Um, it's The first couple of minutes of an incident are incredibly hard to – this is the red zone training, Robin. Uh, it's yep, incredibly yep. hard to control things like adrenaline. You're going to do everything too fast and it's going to take five minutes for you to – you listen to them, they're, they're doing 180 beats a minute and then they start to talk to each other and they start to slow down and they come on track. And that's where the magic happens. Yeah, because that even highlights the difference in – the CPR between the UK and Australia. That was another thing we've talked about. Isn't there different ratios? Are our rates the same, Mother Helen? Yeah, there's subtle differences. 100, 120 a minute. Yeah, same here, same here. That's what I'm yes, saying. The, the Bondi guys are going too fast because they're in the red zone now. They've got adrenaline and everything else. But, um, they come back to There are some subtle differences, there. though. Yeah. I think in when we call for help and yeah. uh, when we do five initial rescue breaths, strangely, there are certain differences, which again, I guess is based on the science. I mean, Robbie and I well, gave you the example think. that it's, yeah, it's the same in terms of if you look at COVID, dare I say the dreaded COVID, but here it's 1.5 meters plus a mask. In the UK, it's a meter plus a mask. Other countries, 1.8 meter plus a mask. It's just based on local science. 
to an extent. Yeah, because you guys have the European European uh, Council for Reg- Res- Resuscitation, yeah. and there's the international the one there. So, so they're all looking at they're all looking at the same evidence. Do you think they'd be the same? I don't know if we still got that. <laughs> the UK will be doing their own now. You see. Oh, yeah. We have got UK resuscitation as well, but it generally follows the ERC. That's from right. My limited yeah. knowledge. Yeah, so it's so, weird. I think America's different as well. Oh, it's fifty. There are fifty countries over there. It's a difficult place. <laughs> fifty countries, not yeah. fifty states. Yeah, yeah, and, and they all have their own yeah. rules. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was interesting though that the subtle difference is, and you think, does that actually make a difference to? someone's life what doesn't work i mean that was the thing we talked about what what doesn't work i've got a list ready oh, you, <laughs> helen's got a list oh. <laughs> no no <laughs> i haven't well prepared. I, I think i put a list together because you posed a question of what would you change if you could if, if you sort of had your time again what would you scrap and do again i think we've talked a lot about professionalizing lifeguards i think where they sit certainly in the UK at the moment, I'm not going to be a a lifeguard campaigner as such, but where they sit in terms of what they do and what they may have to do one day and how they're respected and how they're, they're looked at. If I had a magic wand, I'd certainly change that. So the status. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think lifeguards, we spoke about this, Robin, when I Mm. spoke to you on the last podcast, they, I don't think even they realize what they may have to do at times. No, they don't. They don't know until the brown stuff hits the whirly thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, Agreed. and all the all the training and the professionalism of the, the the likes of the RLSS will never prepare a lifeguard until it happens to them. And when Gary's telling us about the guys who do it day in day out in Bondi Beach when it hasn't been closed mm. for the COVID, uh, you know, and, and to hear about. <laughs> Their adrenaline rush, you know, what you, well, what does that give our lifeguards? What chance does our, our boys have? So status, yeah, I agree with you there 100%. Look, one of the things I found with lifeguards was I I could talk about, so I talked about my, I, talk, I call it my fatality. Um, I, I could talk the, the story about the dead child and the sad mother, um, but what re, and that does have an effect. And I don't like to do training through fear because there's already too much of that mm-hmm. around. But I do yep. like to talk about what happens to you now. That's when I found I could motivate lifeguards to actually get out there and, and hunt their water, hunt, Helen, like uh, yep. and work hard <laughs> to get it Thanks. right, but to know what can happen today on any given day. If we take the question back to you saying what doesn't work well, I think the key thing I'd look at is swimming pools in terms of their structure and how they're built and architects let's let's go there but you you don't have that same problem to a point so what would you what would you change gary oh no i would um like to see the architects in court more i'd like to drag an architect into a witness box and have them swear on a bible to tell the truth and i would show them a picture of where the lifeguard was standing with a mannequin in the water that he can't see and then say to the light to the architect did you consider this when you were designing this building and i want to hear him say no your honor yeah i've got that written on my list (laughs) because they don't get dragged in they don't they don't drag 
oh, the lifeguard's just getting crucified for something that really could have been you know, mitigated out or at least pointed out to them. Imagine this. So you go, you go and um, pick up a brand new bulldozer. They just don't go, here it is, Helen, drive it home, see you later. No, they don't do that. They do it in, you could have your license, you've got to be inducted to the machine, here's the instruction manual. But with the pool, like you say, you get chucked to the keys and go, here she goes, all yours, Helen, you can open her up when you're ready. And you go, well, how do we lifeguard it? Oh, I don't know. Or I love, I love that architects will give you a business case for a pool and go, here's the projected profit for the center. I like to go to them, well, how much have you allowed for staffing? And they go, well, we've allowed um, $100,000 a year go for staffing. Great. Well, how many lifeguards is that? What do you mean? Well, how many lifeguards between, you know, six in the morning and 10? And how many lifeguards? Well, we don't know. Well, what do you, how do you work out a business case if you can't tell me how many lifeguards are on deck? Because if I've got to add another lifeguard on deck after we open this center because it doesn't work with two, it now needs three, there goes my business case. And then my boss is breathing down my neck. Yeah, it's awareness, isn't it? It's getting better to a point. I think Robin and I, Robin and I have worked with operators that, that have got knowledge of lifeguarding and what needs to be seen and are informing and helping and supporting architects to build better pools, but it doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. Yep. Well, if I can just get on my high horse for a second. Go. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately. Don't fall off it. No, we'll try not to. <laughs> it's all icy th- there's th- no, Yeah, it's a bit icy today, yeah. The... <laughs> There are some good operators out there who get involved in the design of the swimming pool and probably annoy the shit out of architects and all the people involved. But the majority lift the Sport England guidance and it gets taken off the shelf and they design a pool following the Sport England guidance. And Sport England guidance has probably not been changed in I don't know how many years. And a little example, just to bring it back into my world, is we've been drilling holes in swimming pools for years now, but there's still no mention of future-proofing buildings for drowning detection. You know, it doesn't have to, any system, just future-proof it. And it's still, the guidance is still for narrow walkways that you can't even get a lifeguard chair on. You know, that's just the name too. But that's the problem. A lot of architects will just lift the guidance off the shelf and design it exactly like that without involving the operators etc and that's to me that's a big problem we have and it's just like talking to a brick wall i'm sure i'll offend somebody by saying that but kind of that's what these things are about well the other issue that comes (laughs) up is if i'm if i'm an architect who's now built four centers and learned some good lessons and now i'm a good um, aquatic center builder I'm going to charge a bit more, but guess what? When I do, like, I go yeah. to the bottom of the pile and we pick the cheapest guy who's never built one. He's built a shopping centre and uh, yeah. we're back to square one with people who know nothing about building aquatic centres. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's we have a pool, uh, I better not name it, but the, the, the you know it was the first one they'd ever built and all they ever built before was car parks. And then it wasn't... It, it, it was a 50 meter and it wasn't, it didn't follow, if didn't fit into the FINA guidelines, et cetera, because of the, the tolerances that were out, et cetera. And that's just a tiny little, tiny little um, example. I think, and you're quite right. I love working with certain builders and architects who will engage with you because you've done a pool with them or a job with them and you can talk things through. But there are, like, I suppose in every walk of life, there's those who'll just say, no, this is, this is what I'm doing because that that means my square meterage cost will be down to, you know, 10 grand a square meter instead of 10 and a half, whatever. How about this then for fairy dust? Because I've been watching a lot of Disney is that oh. every architect in our, in our new world 
has to do an MPLQ whilst they're at uni, and then they have to maintain it as part of their CPD to be an architect to build swimming pools. <laughs> they're going to be a lifeguard. They're going to be a lifeguard qual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got that's part of their CPD. They're not allowed to build a pool unless okay, you've got the qualification. Right. Yeah. You're using shorthand there. I'd need a translator. Sorry, <laughs> National Pool Lifeguard Qualification. I've been fortunate enough to be involved in two new build projects. And one of my friends, it was involved in the design of the pool. And in my naivety, I thought every pool was designed the same way. And this is when I met the guru that Helen knows as well, Keith Sage. Because we yeah. went, I went with the architect and we went with paper, just the plans before there was even a hole in the ground. And we walked our way through the whole, the entire leisure centre. I thought we were only going to look at the pool, but he took us from the roadside right the way through and we made changes on paper. And that was a very enlightening experience. But I also thought, well, everybody does it this way. Now, I got a short, sharp shift after that. But on the other side of the coin, as a project manager for that, I got absolutely inundated with everything from hairdryers to urinals to floor coverings to tiles, everything. My, my friend Alistair, who did the design, said that, that I got about a tenth of what he got. So architects have got to have this huge knowledge base and they're expected to know all these things. And it's it's yeah. where, you know, that's where you need some more specialist advice. For, you know, a squash court's a squash court's a squash court, generally speaking. And a main hall, there's a few different variations. But the swimming pool is probably the most, you know, it, it's the highest risk area, if you like, because that's the place when something happens, the police close you down. It's not necessarily more people will die in your swimming pool than on your squash court if you get well, Robin, the Robin, can I just but, blow some yeah. smoke up you for the minute? Is yeah. All the problems we've <laughs> talked about in this last hour are solved by a product like yours. Like bad architecture is solved with underwater cameras. Lifeguarding problems are solved by underwater cameras. The cost, the everything. Like that's why I just go, this is a real, you know, fork in the road for aquatics. Should it be a standard? I, I, should I it, think we're getting there. Should it be? I think we're getting there, Helen. Every pool's built with technology. That's on my list, by the way. Taking the company hat off, if you like. I know that in... 10 years, 10 to 15 years, technology in swimming pools will be as standard as a smoke detector in your house. You get it out. I'd like to think we've, we've taken it forward that, um, you know, it'll not, you know, there'll be loads of companies doing stuff like that then because it's another area where technology can make a difference. You know, it's not technology just for the sake of technology. Uh, that always yeah. bugs, bugs the life out of me. Uh, what's your line you always say, Helen, about lifeguards and the tools they've been given? You wouldn't expect a manager to, I don't know, write their reports with a pencil yeah. like they did 50 years ago, but you still expect a lifeguard to lifeguard the pool with the same technology they had 50 years ago. That's the reality of what they're dealing with. And, and there's probably lots of areas in leisure centres where you have people like myself who are kind of championing a cause about doing things slightly differently. And I think it's 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 taken that from the the early adopters, you know, I, I thought everybody thought like me. You know, I thought we would have a hundred percent of all the pools in the UK covered by this stage. To the realization that everybody doesn't think like me, that it, it is just a long process, and it's probably like yourself with your training, your red zone training, Gary, and it's probably like a lot of the stuff you do, Helen, with your training, etc. It's kind of dragging people along until the balance tips. And that goes for, for all sorts of, of uh, 
health and safety issues, I think. So yeah, it's it's all positive and, it's, and things like this can only help. So I would like to change it so that all I would be asking is that all pools plan for the future and say, look, okay, let's stick a few niches in here in case or as and when technology is affordable or it is the thing to do. Well, Helen, when I went to the UK and um, went to that pool uh, with Robin, I'm pretty sure you were there with this as well. Yeah. When I sat in that chair with those screens, that that was what flipped my world on, um, you know, bringing lifeguards back to a static position. And never had I felt more empowered as a lifeguard than knowing that I had this computer behind me watching what I was watching and helping me get it right. Um, that's for, for a lifeguard who's been so exposed and been through a fatality. I just, I, I, I want. That's what I want. I want a lifeguard like that. Support, isn't it? it oh, it'll just help incredible. you do your job. Yeah, it is technology yeah. that the the world has technology in every nook and cranny, but our pool sides, as standard, don't. Which is yeah. quite sad, really. That yeah. First Still. responders sign up for the role to save people, and and most of us aren't prepared for the day when we're not able to save someone. Um, and we sort of don't back off going that well it, in that respect. It protects everyone, doesn't it? It protects the public yep. swimming. It protects the yep. lifeguard. It protects the operator. It protects the architects. <laughs> it protects everyone. <laughs> it's that, that layer that should be a necessity in my mind. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to find an architect who used to be a lifeguard and talk to them. <laughs> Get them on here. Yeah, well, we slag them off enough. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> we don't. We don't mean it. We just no. mean the the architectic world. You have to pick on someone. So, what else have you got, Helen? No, I've got a life, I've got an architect in Australia who's just passionate about getting it right, and he'd be a great type of person for you to talk to, Robin. Oh, we better we better get him sl- signed up there. Yeah. Yep. And Helen, what else have you got on that list? Uh, I've got something that's quite interesting in the sense that you said that water safety and kids learn to swim and it you implied that Australia is slightly safer than the UK yet in the UK we have the majority as Robin's touched on our drownings aren't shout for help child in difficulty people can't swim it's more medical so do you think that it it helps and it helps your lifeguards that people learn to swim at a younger age is that one of the factors that you why you have less lifeguards than we do Possibly. I think because most of us in Australia live on the coast too. We're all scared of going inland. So we all live on the coast. Lots of people go to the beach. Um, I, I, I haven't checked recently, but we, I don't, we haven't had a drowning death of a toddler on a surf beach in decades. Um, and that's also about the perception of the risk. People watch their kids at the beach, but take the kids to a pool and you know, dad's pulling out a book or the paper or his phone. <laughs> which just wouldn't happen while there's a you know, a rip and a surf and a, a, a deep backyard edge. pools. Backyard pools. I had a friend that a friend that came back from travelling in Sydney and I think she did some work in a pool in Sydney and all the lifeguards on the back of their shirts had a slogan: "Where is your child now?" So if parents were walking around poolside, the slogan was everywhere. It was on the back of all the all the lifeguards on signage, everything. So people take yeah. responsibility for their own actions. Yeah. So in Australia, we, we, we have a couple of really big parental, parental supervision programs where, where we make uh, parents supervise their, their, their kids. But, and I call it the, the most difficult conversation is for an 18-year-old lifeguard to walk up to a 30, 30-year-old dad 
and and have this conversation that implies that you aren't a good parent because you're not watching your kid. And it takes a really good communicator and a really you know switched on person to have that conversation that's then effective to make them change their supervision habits and we again don't back up lifeguards very well with decent training that helps them have that conversation there's another point on my list in terms of when you go to a trampoline park or a family activity center in the uk it might be different in australia but before you are allowed to go in the park you're shown a safety video which which defines to you the risks of what you're about to go into rightly or wrongly accidents still happen it it doesn't Mm remove accidents but you're going into a park that contains a trampoline or other play items that a lot of people have in their back garden and are familiar with yet when you go into a swimming pool parents carers guardians aren't given that form of information it's just a standard or it's a pool it's safe off you go that's what the lifeguards are for i think the balance is wrong potentially yeah, so um, exactly. Australia, the UK, we have um, large cultural diversity and we often in the coroner's court hear a parent saying, I thought the lifeguard was watching my kids. The, ro- the role isn't professionalised in, in the sense we've been talking about, yet parents believe that it is to an extent that lifeguards will look after their children whilst they swim. The yeah. balance is wrong. Yep, too much Bondi rescue. <laughs> well i think you said earlier gary everybody goes well what was the lifeguard doing yeah absolutely it's always on the lifeguard it's the first point what were they doing where were they yeah. have you anything more on your list or are we are we we drawing to the end of this one uh i've got one little thing which might be relevant or might not in my case if you were to build a pool would you have it all one depth Gary, out of interest, do you foresee deep water as a higher risk? Um, if we look at the data, most of the incidents occur around shallow water. So I wouldn't have deep water from a point of view of just the cost of um, the extra chemicals, extra filtration, extra infrastructure. Um, yeah, but I don't see deep water as a danger. Certainly, I see lots of kids who, who can't dive anymore because we've said, oh, you, you know, we, we, back when I learned, every kid could dive into a pool. Now we've said, no, this pool's too shallow, so you can't dive. So kids don't learn to dive. So just this big snowballing effect. Um, I don't have any real fear about deep water. We have a bit of water. We play a lot of water polo in a lot of pools in, in, in Australia. Um, so, but again, it's just expensive water. Expensive water, deep water. Yeah. I think the reason I put it on the list was. A lot of operators use a point of where where a pool starts to slope as their control measure for keeping people mm. contained in a shallow area. So in terms of risk risk assessment, is it enough to mitigate risk to make pools safer? What, if he, they're all shallow or one depth. Here's one for you, Helen, uh, and it refers back to Keith Sage. Whenever we met him and designed the 25-metre pool, he said, why don't you build your pool one metre deep for half the for 12 and a half 13 meters and then it went from the 13 meter mark to 1.5 meters at the deep end so it was one meter that half for the half the half the surface area and then 1.5 um and he still said to me even after we built that's probably one of the safest pools in the country but the general perception is that the pool is oh that's that's a real shallow pool what yeah, what knob designed that don't happen in 
shallow pools. I get that all the time. Would you, if you had but, your, but your fairy dust? Keith's point was that you, what would your most ideal of your, pool be? Mine would probably be to be a standard depth the whole way, potentially with a movable floor that where you could change the level of lifeguarding and supervision based on that risk. But we're inherently left with pools that have this this pit of deep water, which reduces visibility of lifeguards. It yeah. generally means you need more lifeguards, and it's not it's not necessary. It's not used in a lot of cases, other than to up your energy bill, as you've said. So, yeah, if my fairy dust was out, that's probably how I design a pool. Yeah, simple things too. Like I see architects um, use a blue tile to make the water look bluer, which just makes the bottom of the pit, as Helen calls it, um, darker to see into and harder to supervise where you don't – you don't a white tile will make – once it's filled full of water, will look blue anyway. Don't try and make them look any bluer. The majority of public pools would be white tiles. Where we are having difficulty is the – as they call them, the high-end resi pools – where you've got black tiles and you know all sorts of you know black tiles and a black ceiling, so that everything just looks black. Uh, you know, and some of the lighting is just horrendous. So it's- when I was in Canada, I went to a pool that had been um, the bloke who ran the local government or the province over there. He'd been in the game for twenty years and helped uh, had a big hand in designing the pool. When I walked into their pool hall, one of the things I noticed was the black line on the bottom of the pool wasn't a black line; it was just the outline of the black line. So if you if a person was laying on the pool on the black line, you could clearly see that there was someone down there rather than just a dark blob on a big black line. It was. Yeah. Incredible. Genius. And obviously that's been shared all around the world and now they build pools like that. <laughs> yeah. It <laughs> is <isn't>. crazy. <laughs> we had a near miss in my pool where an eight-year-old child in a dark swimsuit went to the bottom and that's where she landed on the black line. And you couldn't see her. I mean, we had underwater cameras. This was back in the day. There was only six underwater cameras. But the lifeguard who was in a tower that was like you – know, 10 feet high standing at that height missed it because the child landed on the the black line but the other yeah. lifeguard who had the side view camera picked it up but if we hadn't had the camera we probably would have lost her so the black yeah. line i like that idea of the outline that makes that a lot good. of good sense yeah you heard it here first yeah heard it here first yeah <laughs> but we'll, we'll mark that down to you guy well, <laughs> Gary Sanger, the been- guy's guy, his name was Gary Sanger and he was from um, Ontario in Canada. He was a guy I can't with it. Oh, right. I've written that down. Mm. Well, listen, uh, I think it's been um, a very interesting, uh, must be an hour and a half, I would think, including my little yeah, blip to in the middle. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. Helen, yeah. She just who's, goes on and on, doesn't she? Who's going to edit those bits? <laughs> on a tangent. They, they will. They will listen. No, they will. They will listen to it if they want. No, it's been really great. I, I've really enjoyed that. It's been educational as well as entertaining. And I'd like to thank you both very much for uh, joining me tonight. And I think we've probably left enough out there to to say we're going to have to revisit this and come back with something else. I would think. Yeah, I think so too. So uh, definitely, Gary's going to have to come back with Hoppe's autograph. Definitely yeah. <laughs> to Helen. <laughs> say hi. To, say hi to him for me. <laughs> hey, there's your, there's your challenge. All right, yeah. folks. Well, um, happy New Year to you. And you. Yeah. And let's That's hope uh, 2021 turns out to be slightly better than 2020. Different. Yeah, I'm a bit over it now. Can only get better, eh? 
Okay, listen, good okay. to talk to you and we'll talk to you. See ya. Bye. All the best. You See guys you take home. care. See you, Rob. Bye. Bye.